0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I have got so much to get to today. Really important stuff. Some not so important. But so strap in. And let's dive in. I'm going to ease into the main five stories, you know, the top five stories. Maybe subconsciously I got that from AM radio, you know, the top 10 songs coming up after the break. Anyway, as I was able to confirm over the weekend, last night, Iowa's popular governor, Kim Reynolds, did endorse Ron DeSantis in that caucus state, and they did a round of broadcast network interviews, and she made the point that she doesn't decide who to endorse based on polls, uh, that she thinks DeSantis is the best person for the job. Well, you could probably just look at your watch and see the seconds tick off before Donald Trump responded. Why would anybody endorse Rhonda Sanctimonious, who is like a wounded bird falling from the sky? And he goes on to say, Well, the nation's most unpopular governor, Kim Reynolds of Iowa, just endorsed him. What's that all about? Uh, So when you are, in the view of the former president, um, disloyal, you go from being a a perfectly popular governor, which is what it really is, to the most unpopular governor in all 50 states. Okay. Bill Belichick's uh, New England Patriots are now two and seven, having been beaten by the Washington Commanders uh, on Sunday. I still hate that name. And, you know, there are all these stories about uh, will Belichick survive or the Patriots going to dump him? I'll tell you one thing. I bet he had Tom Brady back because he had a winning record when Tom Brady was the quarterback. Um, you know, I meant to mention this a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted to give a brief plug. There was a story uh, in the New York Times by Grace Ashford um, about George Santos. She is the one who broke the story after he was elected about all the fabrications in his resume. And he said to her, I will never speak to you again. But later on, he did speak to her. And then he spoke to her a lot. And they exchanged texts and all that. And she finally told him, since he never said it was off the record, that she was going to write a story about this. And and Santos said, I will never speak to you again. If you just Google uh, Santos and Grace Ashford, um, you can see it if you like. Clay Travis, an occasional guest on my program, founder of OutKick. And a co-host of the syndicated radio show, the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show, said it's his uh, success in conservative media because he's significant. He's clearly, you know, between the founding of this company and the syndicated radio show, he's kind of a big deal. That's why he says he's being audited by the IRS. He believes it's a sign that Joe Biden was out to get him. Now, he said on uh, his radio show, I haven't inherited some massive sum of money that's making my tax returns complicated. I don't think there's any way this is coincidental. I've been doing talk radio for 15 years. I've been in the media, primarily sports media, for a long time. And over the last decade or so, I started to make pretty good money. So it's not like this is the first time where I've never turned in a tax return and had to pay a lot of taxes. And I have paid a lot of taxes. And he goes on to say, and this was on Twitter, that when he took over uh, the former Rush Limbaugh show, they told him to, quote, expect the IRS to audit you every year there's a Democrat in office. Well, I don't know who they is, and I don't know how accurate that is, and I don't know that Joe Biden had anything to do with it. But that's how Clay Travis feels, and... It does seem, it just does seem like a very odd coincidence. Okay. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she said this on uh, CNN. Republican voters across the country are sick and tired of Republicans. Huh. Because they never do anything to hold this government accountable. Republicans go out on the campaign trail and go on TV and do their five-minute hearing videos and posts up on social media and say all this garbage about how they're going to fight and stop it, I feel like many of the American people that think that Republicans in Congress completely failed them. I feel the same way, and I'm a Republican member of Congress, in case you missed it. Um, So, that's fascinating, particularly because, especially before she formed that alliance with Kevin McCarthy, you know, you could have said of Marjorie Taylor Greene that she... uh, said a lot of things in order to get attention, Uh, a lot of incendiary things. I mean, that's her style. But man, you got to be, as a Republican congresswoman, you got to be fed up with your party to go into that. Okay, so I made my national TV debut on Sunday playing a bit of a couple of Beatles songs, She Loves You and Let It Be. And... I'm going to declare victory because nobody wrote in and said, you know, you suck. Um, And, of course, it was for a piece about the new Beatles song. And I just want to get in this, uh, I think it's an op-ed column by Ian Leslie in the New York Times. Um, He says, and he's writing a book about this, that the new song, Now and Then, is the love story of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Their songs so permeate our lives. This is just very well written. He, we sing them in nurseries and in stadiums. We cry to them at weddings and funerals and in the privacy of our bedrooms. The appeal is multi-generational. Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish were avowed fans. Beatles songs speak to us so directly because they are vehicles for the transmission of feelings too powerful for normal speech. Lennon and McCartney were intense young men who grew up in an era before men were encouraged to speak about their feelings, either in therapy or to one another. Uh, They gained their emotional education from music, particularly from black artists. Almost everything they felt, and they felt a lot, was poured into the music. I do feel as though now and then is a love letter to Paul written by John, and that's why Paul was so determined to finish it. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that there was a great deal of affection between these two young men, both of whom lost their mothers at a relatively young age, you know, both working class uh, kids from Liverpool. But, and, and, and they also went through times when they were blasting each other in music. So they had their ups and downs, but they had reconciled. And by the way, though, I think this song was written about Yoko Hearkening back to the time in the early 70s when they had split temporarily and John went off with a friend of hers and now he's kind of missing her now and then and wants her back. All right. Number one, Donald Trump on the witness stand yesterday. Now, first of all, this would have had a hundred, maybe a thousand times the impact if it had been televised. But that's not according to New York state law. So instead, all day long, I'm watching like everybody else, and the reporters inside the courtroom are writing little notes to their anchors and correspondent colleagues. Oh, Trump said this. Well, uh, Judge Arthur Engeron said this. Um, so here's the lead of my column today. Can't say it better than this. Donald Trump was playing to two audiences yesterday in a Manhattan courtroom, the Court of Public Opinion and the Court of Appeals. So for all his attacks on the judge, and there were a lot of them, very, very unfair trial. You decided I was guilty before you ever saw me. um, Right to his face. And criticizing, you know, Letitia James, the New York AG as well. And of course, coming out during every break, there was when he first got there, he talked to reporters outside the courthouse. When there was a mid-morning break, uh, I think he talked then. He certainly talked during the lunch break. And then he talked after his testimony was over. He testified for about five hours. Um, They only had him for one day. Nobody ever explained why. Maybe that was what was negotiated between the two sides. But they didn't even take up the full day. By about 3 o'clock Eastern, Trump was done. So, Trump knows and his legal team knows he's not going to change Arthur Engeron's mind, the guy has already declared him guilty of fraud and his company, the Trump Organization. Ivanka Trump, by the way, testifies tomorrow. She's not a defendant, as uh Don Jr. and Eric are. So you're not gonna change this guy's mind. He he took a couple of jabs at Trump. He you know, rolled his eyes once. He makes pretty clear that he is um not enamored of the forty fifth president. So my view is Trump was trying to bait him. The more he tangled with the judge, the more he was going to, trying to create grounds for successful appeal. Um, the only thing at stake in this trial right now, because there's no jury, is the degree of financial punishment for the Trump organization and whether it will be so severe that we'll no longer be allowed to do business in New York State. So when the trial began... This is what uh, Trump told reporters: while Israel is being attacked, while trade is being attacked, while inflation is eating our country alive, I'm down here, um, and these are all political opponents. This is really election interference. An argument you know you've probably heard him make once or twice. Called Letitia James a racist, she came out and made a brief statement to the mics, saying the case will be decided on facts and the numbers don't lie. So. On the substance of it, Trump said some things that could be used against him. He said that he did look at the real estate valuations that the Trump company gave to banks and insurance companies about how much it estimated, with the help of its accountants, um, various properties were worth. He said, I would look at them, I would see them, and I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions. He said that one golf course uh, in New York's Westchester County, the estimate was dropped after he said it was overvalued. He said, everybody in the organization keeping statements honest, sometimes I'd hear things about fraud, he said, and take care of it. So he's not making the argument that he didn't know anything about this. He's saying, yeah. I looked at the statements and I got involved. But then, of course, he says there is a caveat in the statement that you shouldn't completely rely on this. Do your own due diligence. He rambled a lot going on, for example, on and on, I should say, about the utter beauty uh, of his golf course in Scotland. Might be the best golf course in the world. Irrelevant, irrelevant. Answer the question, Angoran said. Judge kept telling him over and over to shorten his answers, One point saying, we're going to strike those remarks in the record. This is not a political rally. But of course, Trump has kind of turned this case, civil case, there's no question of jail time, unlike the four criminal cases, into a political offensive that his supporters are cheering him on. And when he's defiant to the judge and the state attorney general, they think he's taking on a corrupt system. They think the system is rigged, to use a favorite Trump word, and now to get him. Now, Trump had to concede, and he went into Mar-a-Lago. I didn't contest it, but it's certainly worth, you know, 100 times more than $18 million. And on that point, I think he's right. But he also had a setback when he had to concede that his Trump Tower triplex was actually 11,000 square feet, not 30000 as he had claimed. He said, well, I think the elevator shafts may have been mistakenly counted. Remember, he built the building. He lived in the apartment. Uh, He also said, look, the Trump brand adds value to any property. The disclaimer clause is what he said. And Engron was a little miffed at that. He said, if you want to know about the disclaimer clause, read my opinion again, or for the first time perhaps. Boom. Now, the judge really got into it with one of Trump's lawyers, Christopher Keis, uh saying he had to rein in his client. Quote, I beseech you to control him if I can't. If you can't, I will excuse him and draw any negative inference that I can. Now, what does that mean? It's usually something that's said to a jury. Engoron um, was threatening to kick Donald Trump off the stand if he didn't sort of tighten up his answers and be more responsive to the prosecution questions. As for the negative inference, again, usually something you tell a jury, he, he can assume that Trump was, is not trying to answer the question and hold that against him. At one point, he called Trump a broken record. I mean, this is not a judge who has neutral feelings about Donald J. Trump. okay, they excuse him finally, 3 o'clock. That day of the trial is over. Trump comes out to the mics. It's a scam, he said. This is a case that should never have been brought. It's a case that should be dismissed. He called it a very sad day for America. But then Letitia James wanted to get her last word in, so she came out and said he rambled, he hurled insults, but we expected that. Justice will prevail. Well, we'll see about that. Um. So just one last point about the non-teleadvising of the trial. Pictures of what went on in there. By the way, I thought the sketch artist was terrible. He made Trump look really fat. His face was really fat. I think he should file suit against the, t- the sketch artist. Um, but there were, the cameras were allowed to take, and this has been true with other witnesses as well, about one minute of footage as Trump walked in and as he sat down to the defense table. T played that over and over and over again. So like every time he blinked or changed the expression, you would see it. But then by the fifth or sixth or seventh time, but you know, they have to have something to, as, as we say in the biz, cover uh, the trial because at that point, the, even the sketches weren't available. Anyway, that's Donald's day on the stump. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, The Duffy's, at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Story number two, and on any other day, I would leave with this. Washington Post. Democrats are growing increasingly anxious about the state of President Biden's reelection campaign, concerned that the president and his political team are ignoring warning signs and not taking action to correct course amid, this is a long sentence, increasing indications that Biden is likely to face a tough race against former President Donald Trump. Now, what's happening here is there's a little bit of panic setting in, mostly triggered by the New York Times-Siena College poll I shared with you yesterday. I have more to say about that. Um, some Democrats derided by more loyal Biden Dems as bedwetters say this is much do about one single poll, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, there now is being a lot of negative coverage of this president from a press corps that generally covers him, which with some degree of sympathy, I think it's fair to say, and yes, you know, they've they've certainly run a lot of stories. The media have certainly run a lot of stories about his age and the withdrawal f- from Afghanistan as deadly as that was. But now, the media, much of the media, I don't know if I'd say most of the media, but much of the media is terrified of the f- idea that Donald Trump could win a ter- second term. And it looks like he has a shot. So, Washington Post goes on, the latest fuel landed with a thud. This is the New York Times poll showing Trump ahead of Biden in five out of six swing states. I am concerned, said Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal on the record. I was concerned before these numbers. I am concerned by the inexplicable credibility that Donald Trump ceased to have despite all the indictments, the lies, the incredible wrongdoing. A particular worry for the Biden Democrats now is black voters here's Cliff Albright, co-founder of the Black Voters' Matter Fund. People fundamentally un- misunderstood what black voters said in 2020 you'll remember Biden won South Carolina and then won a you know big dominant share of the black vote in the subsequent primaries. The depth of support was never there, this guy says the enthusiasm was never there for Biden. We were very pragmatic. We knew he was the best chance to beat Trump. Biden campaign tried to tamp down the concerns, saying polls often paint a dire picture uh, a year out as they did for President Obama. Um, They expect, obviously, their opponent to be Trump. He has a long list of political vulnerabilities, you think? Spokesman for the Biden campaign. Predictions more than a year out tend to look a little different a year later. But some Democratic strategists have long worried that Biden's core political team, which includes a coterie of long-serving aides, is not fully transparent or open to outside advice. And they think he should be campaigning more vigorously. i will get to that in a second. And... Maybe it is time or question whether it's time to shift messaging and tactics. Because whatever's going on now, in addition to the fact that he'll turn 81 this month, clearly ain't working. David Axelrod, uh, who worked for both of Barack Obama's campaigns and in the Obama White House, uh, said... According to the story in the New York Post, the the new poll will send tremors of doubt through the party and create legitimate concern about Biden seeking re-election. Only Joe Biden can make this decision, Axelrod said. If he continues to run, he will be the nominee of the party. What he needs to decide is whether that is wise, whether it's in his best interest or the country. Now, Axelrod did say there's a risk associated with changing course now. But there's a lot of leadership talent in the Democratic Party poised to emerge. But the stakes of miscalculation here are too dramatic to ignore, says Axe. And and then also in this New York Times poll, there's this generic Democrat BS. You know, a generic Democrat would beat Donald Trump by, uh, you know, eight points or whatever it is. A generic Democrat has no negatives. He's just some ideal hypothetical Democrat. Actual human beings have weaknesses and the generic Democrat would look very different after being pounded by Trump and the Republicans. So I think that is just a red herring. Now here's the very shrewd political analyst Amy Walter saying it's not that Trump's support is growing. Look uh, New York Times poll versus 2020. Um Arizona, 49, 49. Georgia, 49, 49. Michigan, 47.8, 48. Pennsylvania, 48.8, 48. So Trump may have a ceiling there. But if you look at Biden, it's all because of Biden dropping that the race uh, has Democrats tearing their hair out. Arizona, he went from 49% of the vote in 2020 to 44%. Georgia, 49.5%, 43% now. Michigan, 50.5%, 43% now. Pennsylvania, Scranton Joe, 50%. Last time around, 44% now. That's the story. Okay, here's Politico. Biden's campaign and the DNC spent roughly $7 million on positive ads this year, um, making a calculation to prioritize bolstering Biden's image versus attacking Trump, according to White House aides, a number of strategists, and a top Biden campaign donor. But the bet has not paid off. Trump has largely skated through the uh, primary without being attacked by his opponents. That's changed a little bit, but not, you know, brass knuckle stuff. And Biden's numbers haven't budged. And they're all talking about whether they should go negative or more negative as opposed to positive. I would argue the press goes negative against Donald Trump every day and covering all of these cases. So, you know, all legitimate stories yesterday, totally legitimate story, former president on the stand, accused of fraud. But I think Biden's got a different problem he's got to fix. And it's not, everyone already knows about Donald Trump's liabilities, as they know about Joe Biden's liabilities. Okay, New York Times talks about the wars in Israel and Gaza, which I think is also adding right now to the president's unpopularity. President Biden is confronting the limits of his leverage in the two international conflicts defining his presidency. Uh, he, Biden has been asking Netanyahu For humanitarian pauses in the bombing of Gaza to uh, get more aid to innocent civilians who were being killed as collateral damage, Netanyahu has said, no, we're not stopping. And from his point of view, any pause of even, you know, eight hours or 24 hours gives Hamas time to regroup and perhaps attack. In Ukraine, a top uh, general, the top general, said last week that the war is a stalemate. Zelensky was very unhappy with him and publicly criticized him. But that may make it harder to get Republicans to vote for funding for Ukraine. Remember, Biden linked the two things. New House Speaker Mike Johnson insists on unlinking them. And right now, nobody's getting any aid. It's a long history of US presidents realizing they don't have as much leverage over Israel as they thought, says Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton, a former Marine. So I just think Biden's getting it from the left and the right. The Rashida Tlaib wing of his party is accusing him of genocide, as if Israel just woke up and decided to kill a lot of Palestinians rather than being attacked with horrible Hamas atrocities. when not speaking on the record, some of Biden's aides say the president has been taken aback by Netanyahu's unwillingness to bend on the question of attacks of dense urban areas, on dense urban areas. Uh, the Israelis say, look, we're fighting with what we have, 1,000 and 2,000 pound bombs. Um, th- those were never envisioned as being used in a dense urban area. The US is trying to transfer to Israel much smaller bombs while waiting for Congress to do something. A quick point here. Biden is going out and campaigning on domestic issues. What's happening is, it is not being covered. It's barely a blip. Why? Because the war is the lead story virtually every day. And on the days when the war is not the lead story, Trump is the lead story, as with yesterday. So he went to Delaware and met with a bunch of Amtrak officials, and he's announcing $16 billion in new funding for Amtrak and then other agencies to rebuild or finish tunnels and stations and rail bridges. Um, A lot of that going to the Washington to Boston corridor, the Acela corridor. So I'm interested in that because um, this would cut once completed. And by the way, these tracks on the East Coast, Late in 1850, I'm sure some of them have been replaced, but originally late in 1850. It would cut half an hour uh, between D.C. and NYC if um, you could go faster. But, you know, and he gave a speech and he's Amtrak Joe, but, you know, didn't get mentioned much. Because why? Because Trump was on all day. Number three, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu telling ABC News. Israel will need to oversee the security of the Gaza Strip for an indefinite period once the war with Hamas is over. And Israel has to have overall security responsibility indefinitely. We've seen what happens when we don't have it. What we have is the eruption of Hamas terror on a scale we couldn't imagine. President Biden has warned it would be a, quote, big mistake for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. Um, but B.B. doesn't seem to be listening to Joe very much. Absolutely not. Number four, from The Atlantic. For some Republican voters, to attend a Nikki Haley campaign rally is to dive headfirst into the warm waters of an alternate reality, a reality in which Donald Trump is old news. I don't recognize that reality. Um, This was, um, she was in a New Hampshire diner, She was outlining her her priorities, securing the border, supporting veterans, promoting small business, and removing the kick-me sign from America's back. Her voice was steady. Her words were studied. The attendees beamed from their tables as though they couldn't believe their luck. Finally, here was a conservative candidate who didn't sound completely unhinged. Uh, The voters interviewed uh, for this piece have had it up to here with the former president. The insults, the drama the interminable parade of indictments and gag orders. They've been yearning for a standard-issue Republican with governing experience and foreign policy chops. And Haley, uh, who was, of course, South Carolina governor and then named by Trump to be ambassador to the UN, fits the bill, and then some. Well, of course, most of these people are going to like her because they showed up for this meeting. When Haley finished speaking, voters scrambled to secure a campaign button reading NH loves N.H., Nikki Haley. Some them waited in line for half an hour to shake her hand. Her support's been ticking up for weeks. New polling showing her at almost 20% in New Hampshire, up a dozen points since August. But she's not exactly gaining on Trump. In all three states, the earliest states, he's leading the pack by roughly 30 points, which is a heck of a lot of ground for any candidate to make up. But in New Hampshire, voters were hopeful that she could win this thing. She's normal, said Bob Garvin, a lifelong Republican. I just want somebody normal to run for president. Haley has a clear lane. She's seeking to build a coalition of never-Trump Republicans who'd really rather not pull the lever for Biden and one-time Trump voters who now find him tiresome. I don't believe that's the majority of the Republican Party. I think that's Nikki Haley's problem I think that's all of their problems. But... Now that voters who love the former president don't need Ron DeSantis as an option, as he has dropped in the polls, um, they are trending toward Nikki. And the two of them, DeSantis and Haley, have traded attack ads through the last month. One other point on this, and I think I've said this myself: um, the war is going on in the middle. The war, particularly going on in the Middle East uh seems to have prompted more voters to take a second look at Haley's campaign, given her two years of experience at the U.N. You know, sometimes, I mean, the war is a terrible thing. We all wish it hadn't happened. But sometimes uh, somebody in politics just catches a break when the issue or one of the top issues they're identified with, have experience with, happens to come to the fore. We're near the top of the national agenda. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number five is a story the New York Times just did on Fox News. And it just cracks me up. It actually starts out trying to be fair. It sounds on the surface like a favorable story for Fox. But Something about when the Times covers Fox, as it frequently does. And I'm not saying, you know, there haven't been lots of newsworthy things involving Fox, both pro and con. But it acts like it has gone to an alien planet and it's going to observe this species for the right-minded folks back home. I don't mean right in a political sense. I mean the, the smart folks that read the New York Times. Okay. Fox News, long and preferred source of news for the right has lately become an information refuge for some American Jews who believe that the mainstream media has been too hostile to Israel. Well, that's a fact. Oh, but it's a somewhat improbable alliance Jews overwhelmingly identify as Democrats. And as the Republican Party came to embrace a more populist brand of politics that vilifies the globalist corporate interests and wealthy liberal businessmen like George Soros, something many see as coded anti-Semitism, Fox News hosts and guests promoted that view. But more than any of the other major news channels and maybe more than any other American media outlet, Fox News has wrapped itself in the Israeli flag in the weeks since the Hamas attack. Its coverage tends to emphasize the radical and anti-Semitic elements of the pro-Palestinian opposition, particularly on college campuses, while playing down civilian casualties from Israeli strikes. Now, I think that last part is bold because this is always what so many folks who want to attack Fox say. They look at the opinion hosts, especially in prime time, uh, who have been extremely pro-Israel, but they don't look at the news division. And to say that the news division is playing down civilian casualties, I mean, you know, there was the story when the hospital, excuse me, the hospital was bombed, and it was the New York Times that rushed to say that Israel was to blame, which, of course, we all now know it's not. Fox News didn't do that. Fox said, yes, there was a bombing. Yes, uh, Hamas is trying to blame the Israelis, but we don't know what happened, and we will wait for more information, or we will seek more information. Um, and when there was the Israeli bombing, at that refugee camp, the largest one in the Gaza Strip. The news division covered it. I covered it. Um, Fabulous correspondents like Trey Yingst, who I think has become the star of this war coverage. Many brave reporters there, Richard Engel, uh, Clarissa Ward, um, you name it. But there's something about Trey's coverage that he's, just, he's broken a lot of news. Okay, so the piece goes on. Fox News, with the largest audience on all cable TV, draws a sizable number of Democratic and liberal-leaning viewers. Pay attention, folks, but most people don't know this. Among viewers who are 25 to 54, that's the big demo everybody shoots for, um, Fox News had more people who identify as Democrats watching in prime time than either CNN or MSNBC. Fox anchors, especially those who uh, offer the most steadfast defense of Israel, insist they are shining a light on reports of anti-Semitism that other media overlook and are displaying support for an American ally that is being wrongly vilified. Well, that's a fair paragraph. But it's just, you know, they looked at urban areas and, you know, big cities where there's a sizable Jewish population, New York, L.A. uh, I forget what a couple of the others want. You know, Fox's ratings have gone up. But, you know, rather than saying, you know, Fox News is doing a terrific job, I mean, the bravery of the reporters, it's not just Trey, others have gone there. Um, Some anchors like John Roberts have gone there. Rather than saying Fox News is doing a terrific job and therefore is increasing its audience uh, uh, among uh, among Jews it's like well you know they're wrapping themselves in the israeli flag like i just you know i guess a halfway fair story in the new york times is uh, about all the network can hope for hey thanks uh for sticking with me as i go a little long here um it is nice to be able to go deeper on these subjects than i possibly could um Squeezing in those commercials that pay the bills on the air. So we'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.